Look, it's a flood. It's a flood. It's flooding. Get away. Quick, we need to get to higher ground. Open the floodgates. All right, everybody. It is the flood with just Ziggy today. I am joined by a cancer survivor, 20-year military veteran, master's degree in English literature, former retired L5 judge of Magic the Gathering, and founding member of the Rules Committee, Sheldon Mannerby. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Of course. So uh, normally I have a co-host, Doc. We are a primarily a pop culture podcast that mm -hmm. likes to cover a lot of different things. Uh, I've brought magic in several times from a macro perspective, but we also like to have these episodes called Dammits. Since we're the flood, we stop the flood and focus on one thing. Okay. So we uh, we wanted to have you on. I think there's a lot of things that you can chime in on when it comes to magic that are very more nuanced. Uh, the MTG Goldfish pod, something like that, where they're talking like new releases and things like that. Right. As the head of the rules committee, uh, one of the first ones I thought of was like the first Commander products came out in 2011. So did you ever get consulted by Wizards on the release of these Commander products? Yes, um, and it was two years before, or maybe even three, because um, I, I remember it was in the middle of a run where I, ju I had judged three Pro Tours in a row. Oh, wow. And I think it was the one in San Juan, the fellow rules committee member, Scott Larrabee said, we're thinking about making Commander product, what do you think? Or EDH product, what do you think? Um, and of course, what I thought was, that would be cool. Uh, and, he, and he said, we're gonna have to change the name uh, because the lawyers don't wanna risk upsetting the people who hi have the Highlander uh, intellectual property. And I said, couldn't we just call it EDH? And he said, yeah, marketing-wise, it doesn't do anything. I was actually talking to Doc yesterday about this. And he was like, Elder Dragon Highlander. I'm like, yeah. Highlander, yeah, there can only be one. And he's like, <laughs> really? That's that's super nerdy. Yeah. So the, the answer to the question is, yes, they, they, they told us they were making product. We weren't really in the loop uh, at that point like we are today. Like today, we see a set at least twice before it gets released. So yeah, that's a lot more transparency than I actually thought the rules committee would be getting. So like when the first products were released, did you see it on the shelf and be like, oh, wow. Yeah, when they came out, certainly we got advanced notice of, of the things that were coming out. And I remember going to the pre-release or the release, sorry, the release event where you, you know, you bought one of the decks and just played them in a pod. And I, I got the, um, Mimeoplasm deck. Yeah, I ruled both of my pods that day. Mimeoplasm is uh, pretty brutal. One of the things that people always talk about uh -huh. is the ban list. And I was looking up on the uh, Commander website, specifically the philosophy, and it's the ban list seeks to demonstrate which cards threaten the positive player experience at the core of the format or prevent mm -hmm. players from reasonable self-expression. I never read that particularly back then, but I've always been a big proponent of experimenting and personalization in commanding. It's why I've played my <laughs> shitty Jun commander for 10 years. I looked at the list and 
while I, my first experience playing Commander was playing Primeval Titan and getting Urborg and Cabal Coffers. Right. Like, what metrics do you deem something unfun? And, like, the most recent example I can think of is the banning of Hull Breacher. I think we have to be careful with the term fun. You know, for some people, fun is is, is burning uh, ants with a magnifying glass, right? So the idea, again, the, the core of that positive player experience, like we want commander players to, to have games that they want to come back to. There are just cards that really threaten that. And when they do, when they seep down into the broader player base, then that's time to take action, right? It's Hullbreacher was a card, like from the get-go, Hullbreacher wasn't, for one thing, wasn't yeah. the card that we saw in the in the design file um, during the last pass. It 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 changed from something else late in development. So, what was the original version that you saw? Yeah, no, it was it was a completely different card. Like it was it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't anything like Hullbreacher is. Um, so it was it was so, yeah, it was something different. So that actually brings me into another question is like, do you ever, while you work with Wizards, you have, you're independent from Wizards. Mark Rosewater is on record saying he wants the moderators of the format to stay in the hands of the people who created it. Yeah. You and your play group in Anchorage, Alaska, of all places. Undoubtedly, it's been a net game with products, but do you ever feel like something gets released and you just kind of go, oh no? Yeah, we saw, when we saw Holbrecher, we're like, uh, Lutri or Grizzlebrand. Well, we've talked about like I was working there during Lutri. Okay. The discussion came up. Mm -hmm. Why don't we? Why don't we just see when we talked about it more? When the four of us talked about it more, it was like, yeah, let's make an exception. There's no reason not to play. Right. Yeah. There's there's zero opportunity cost for playing the card. Seems silly to to give that to just those two colors. Gristlebrand is another really good example. That thing has never done anything there. No, the, the banning cycle was, and the release cycle were a little different back then. Mm -hmm. um, but we knew that Gristlebrand was gonna live for three weeks or whatever until the next banning yeah. announcement. There's really never, was Commander, there's never a reason to emergency ban something. A card we know we're gonna ban out of the gate, we just do. The real thing is, we have such a great relationship with them. They've told us, like, at the Aaron Forsyth level, they've told us, if you need to ban something that we make, do it. The health of the format's in your hands. And I understand that, we understand that not every card printed is printed for Commander. I looked at Hullbreacher and I'm like, this is a legacy card. Yeah. You know, there, and there are cards that are just not good for the format, uh, which may be great for other formats. And that's fine. Yeah. You know, with, not every card is designed for commander. Yeah. Just like every card is not designed for 1v1. Sure. And you can see the opposite of that with true name nemesis. Right. Yeah, I mean, there there are cards that just, that are houses in other formats that are perfectly unplayable for, for commander. And that's, that's fine, you know, we, sure, I guess we're king of the hill now, but there are still other formats in Magic. Actually having them healthy is good for us. Other formats being good make help make Commander better. The rising tide lifts all ships. As it were, yep. 
So I, I don't I don't know if we 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 circled back to the answer to the previous question, but the okay. the idea the idea is once a once a card that we think is really negative for the broader player base, fast as Oracle is not a problem for ninety nine percent of commander. I have a uh, a rather strong opinion about that card. <laughs> I think that for the most part, yeah, we want to keep the ban list short, as short as possible. We don't want to make changes drastically or quickly. Like we want to make, we want, we want stability. You know, today, as we're recording this, today was and was the quarterly ban list announcement, and there were no changes. And some people, you know, and when we talked in the announcement, we talked about keeping our fingers on the pulse of returning to online to in-person play. Um, and of course, with Streets of New Capenna making so many treasures, it, is it going to warrant a harder look at Dockside Extortions? So if Dockside, again, starts matriculating down into having a negative impact on the target demographic games, then that's the time we'll take action. The five turn game and the 12 plus turn game that that we sort of focus on are radically different animals. A card that has such a drastic impact on the shorter game may not have one in the longer game. And in the case of Dockside, uh, Toby Elliott has been unknown to the rest of us for about a month until he finally told us, tracking how much mana a Dockside extortionist would make for each of us on the first six or seven turns of every game that we play the That's some heavy data crunching. And uh, for everybody, Toby Elliott is another member of the rules committee right now. Correct. And another former level five judge. Brother. Record for most pro tours as a head judge. Yes, he broke my record in fact. Wow, how do you feel about that? It's, uh, Toby is one of my closest friends in the world. So if somebody it, was gonna do it, It makes me think like me. LeBron James chasing Kareem's record. <laughs> like in our games, in our games, a turn two Dockside Extortionist may, may net you zero mana. In fact, there was a game, a game week, bef week before last, I think, that I would have never made mana with a Dockside Extortionist. Watching a, like my friend is a huge CEVH player, like dedicated ad nauseum player. Uh -huh. If I sold that to him, his mind would be blown. He's just assuming that Dockside is always making at yeah. least three treasures. Yeah, for I mean, there there are times for us that it would, that you know, Scott Larrabee, the one of the other members of the, the rules committee, is kind of addicted to enchantments. So there there are times like I mean, he has a Daxos deck, is a you know a cold Daxos deck. Just by him, you'd probably get a mana geyser. <laughs> so one thing with Dockside Extortionist that I looked up is he actually is coming a little bit more ubiquitous in the uh, card pool. I looked at the yep. EDH Rec statistics, and right now Dockside stands to be in 20% of all EDH decks, where if you make sense of the color pie, that fits perfectly. He's I think that's, that means it's in 20% of the decks it could possibly be in. Oh, yeah, that would make sense. But 20% is still a lot. I mean, this Magic has over 25,000 unique cards. Dockside's price has doubled, tripled in the past year? 
it's gotten expensive. We'll start with this before I go into financial implications. Did you ever imagine that your position as a rules committee advisor or member would hold as much weight for so many people and so many people's wallets as it does? No, for sure, no. There was a moment at the first command fest. You know, I, I got there early, you know, they, they let me in, you know, sat down at the table, waited for the people to come in. People came in, yeah. started playing games. It was about an hour later, and I stood up to stretch my legs, and I looked around the room, and there were like 1,100 people playing Commander. There was a time that I wouldn't have imagined 1,100 people in the world playing EDH, let alone being in one room together. It's funny, I just, I just finished another interview, and I said, we didn't set out to rule the world. But here we are, right? It was it was never it was never our intention to be anything other than a niche format, you know, a, a relaxation point for for judges working big events. You know, the format sprung from professional judges playing together. Really, I mean, the idea, like the Alaska group, gave me the seed of an idea. Did you all actually play the Elder Dragons? Uh, they did. I didn't. I never played. Actually, played with them. It was five people awesome. that all had the Elder Dragons. And then when I said, "Hey, you know, maybe this is this has got something that I could do something with. Let's talk about doing it." They had to expand the pool to because back then, if somebody was playing uh, one of the mm -hmm. one of the generals that we called them back in the day, you couldn't play it. Nobody else could play it. Because, you know, again, we imagined, like Richard Garfield, I think a little bit, imagined a very closed pool of players playing together. Do you think that might actually be part of the reason why Richard Garfield, like, included Anti as a mechanic? Because he's like, oh, you can just win it back from your friends. Yeah, I guess. It's, again, yeah, mm -hmm. the cards are going to circulate around that. It, you first discovered it in 1993, so the game was literally a year old. I mean, the EDH didn't come out along too much later. That was 2002. Okay, you all began so, playing in 1993. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I was at the first, I was at the Gen Con where the first Magic cards were released. What came in the starter of the booster? I don't remember the starter, but I walked away from the dealer's table and opened the booster, and the, the rare in it was Time Walk. Real good. Do you still have it? I feel like every Magic player has the... Day. I got rid of that card ports. I got rid of that card a little too early, yeah. I luckily, uh, I had to just recently sell my um, blinged out uh, Sequoia Deathkeeper deck. Thanks for changing the uh, Commander Death Trigger, by the way, because that eliminated an entire piece of a combo I needed. <laughs> so thanks for that. <laughs> Made him as strong as Crush. But I bought all the stuff at like pre-pandemic. I got like yeah. Judge Foil, Yawkmoth's Will for 250. Ooh. Imperial Recruiter for like 50 bucks. All of this stuff super cheap. And I ended up having to sell it probably about six months ago now. And I ended up super plussing on the value of the cards. Like like plus $2,500 overall. I paid off my car insurance and my credit score jumped or 70 points. That was pretty cool. Like I said, it goes into these like heavy financial implications where while yes, a lot of the cards I sold were foil and therefore way more expensive, but certain cards that come in non-foil like Dockside or the 
very infamous reserve list. Now, I know the reserve list cards are not mm -hmm. cards you're going to particularly look at for banning because they're not as ubiquitous. They're harder to maintain. And if you ban Gaia's Cradle, you're gonna have some upset people. I feel like the chairman of the Fed sometimes, talking about a card will move markets. And I think that I, we have to be really, really sensitive, mm -hmm. you know, sort of me as the, as the spokesperson for the group, to be really, really sensitive mm -hmm. to how we talk about cards. The secondary market can't be an impact on whether we ban cards or not, right? We just, we can't, we can't go down that rabbit hole. I don't want, I don't want us involved in the secondary market in any meaningful way. Is it something that you uh, monitor? or at least are somewhat aware of. Aware, sensitive to, I think is the is, is the right term. Uh, the, but the, the main thing is that it would be a real difficult spiral to go down if we got involved in it. We could certainly, you know, there's a lot of room for, for bad things to happen. And we want our integrity to be a well above reproach even though the narrative wouldn't be true, narratives around it could develop. Like the rules committee is in the back pocket of like this D player. Right. Reddit says that already, right? There's, there every, with every banning or unbanning, there's a conspiracy theory somewhere about insider trading or the RC bought up all the world fires or, you know, whatever crazy thing that they, they're gonna say. Personally, I won't buy or sell a card within a m month before a uh, an announcement because I wouldn't want, you know, there's somebody working at Star City Games who I sell a six foil primeval titans to. The little exclamation point goes on above their head. Holy crap, he's dumping his primeval titans. That card's getting banned. I, I, I have a little box with my six foil primeval titans still in it that are now worth next to nothing. And that's okay by me, right? I, like we have to, first thing is the health of the format. We have to be aware of the secondary market. Uh, the reserve list has a special place. That one is a muddied argument. And I'm pretty sure most people know that if the reserve list was eliminated, even though it's a verbal agreement, mm -hmm there would be lawsuits left and right from. Right. I actually interviewed Mark Mestico about four months ago now. Uh -huh. Despite the fact that he has hundreds of thousands of dollars of reserve list cards in his basement, he wants to get rid of that as soon as possible because like you, he has like the player's mindset. People should know what it's like to play a guy's cradle. Sure. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons we want to keep the band list small is because we don't want to take people's toys away from them. Yeah. Like, I, we don't like banning cards, really. And you, you shouldn't. So I've been playing card games since I was 12. Started with Yu-Gi-Oh, switched to Magic in 2011. So all of this 2011 and on stuff, I'm actually like, oh, I was there, I kind of get it. But uh, Yu-Gi-Oh is notorious, especially at this point, for uh, banning overpowered cards to make room for the next overpowered oh. archetype. Yeah, yeah, we're not gonna do that. Right, I, like I really, really, I want, I want the ban list tight. I don't want us making changes very often because I, I think other formats are constantly, especially, you know, especially standard, 
or rotating format standard and modern, well, I mean, modern's a little slower, but I want Commander to be this sort of bastion of civility in a chaotic world. Mm-hmm. Our announcements are quarterly tied to the release of the of big sets. I want us to be somebody that you can count on to, to be there doing the thing that they're doing on a regular basis. Changing just for change's sake is a kind of chaos that we don't want to introduce into an eternal format. How do you think your banning process, Commander, would differ than Wizards' banning process for something like Standard or Modern or Legacy? Like Smother- well, Smuggler's Copter didn't survive in Pioneer three months. The answer to that is they want a balanced tournament environment. Mm-hmm. We want the best possible commander games that people can play. If, like, so balance, when people talk about balance, one, I want to know what they mean because I don't think it means what they think it means. Two, if the format were unbalanced in a way that everybody was having a great time playing it, then unbalanced would be the way to go. This is, I'm, uh, the way you said that, I'm like, this is that masters in English lit showing through. He's like, what do you mean by balance? <laughs> I'm a media communications major, so I do the same thing all the time. Editing, you know, being an editor as well, I think the the most common phrase I have is, what are you trying to say here? And when, you know, people say stuff, I'm like, okay, but like, what are you getting at? Like, what's the, what what are the takeaways here? Uh, and the the thing, the real thing is, we don't care about balance. We don't care about tournament formats. You know, we don't care. I mean, we don't care about Commander as a tournament format. As a matter of fact, we're actively trying to make sure that Commander doesn't become a tournament. Format. I get messages from my friend all the time. He's like, look at these Commander tournament deck lists. And I look at it and it's 89 of the same 99 cards. CEDH is also, it's like I said, its own animal, which has the debate, I'm sure, that has been brought up of making it its quote-unquote separate format. Yeah, well, but, but that doesn't do anything. The thing about that is it's not it's not big enough to spin off. Uh-huh. The player base is vocal, but they don't represent the, a significant percentage of Commander players. The CEDH percentage of people on Twitter is much higher than the not-CEDH yes. players. Yeah, yeah exactly. Let's say we spun it off and there was a CDH ban list and then the regular commander ban list. The CDH ban list would have to be bigger. Yes. Well, different. Not not necessarily bigger. Like different. Primeval Titan. They get to play Primeval Titan if they want, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, who cares about that? The thing is, that wouldn't prevent somebody from bringing a CDH deck to a regular commander event, to an LGS. Uh, a, a Grand Prix or a Command Fest. So unless there were significant overlap in the band mm-hmm. list, it really wouldn't do anything for the play, for the majority of the player base, at which point you go, why bother having this in the first place? Like if somebody had a, a pod of regular commander, somebody accidentally steps in with CEDH and they play a Mana Crypt, the three people are gonna look at them sideways. Really, the, I, the answer is that there's there's no winning scenario for the majority of commander players by 
separating CDH or high powered commander into its own entity. We have the skill set. I mean, remember, remember that there are people who have said to me, you don't understand anything about competitive magic. That sounds absurd. I made, I made that exact face. <laughs> I would respectively challenge them to put together a group of four people who understand more about competitive magic, right? QL5s, the Pro Tour. The Pro Tour tournament, tournament manager. manager for, yeah, for and then many years. Another L3. And uh, who was also who was who was level three before any of us, by the way, um, and and Gavin was you know Gavin's sort of the the least experienced of all of us, but he was a level three, a regional coordinator, mm -hmm. and 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 a net rep. So you know they're like like put together put together your squad. I I, I don't. I don't think we can do much better. I think we could successfully manage a CDH ban list. There's just no ups there's no upside for us doing it. Putting it that way is a way that I've never really heard the argument phrased before. Because at that point, like you can even just look at it from a logistic perspective. Like you're schisming a already separated player base from right. the tournament team. That would just kind of be socially awkward. Like people, like you'd have the guy with the CDH deck who now can't find a play group. My real worry, and I have a group of you know, seven or eight CDHers that I talk to on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Like we have a a, a a small Discord that we get together in, and it's, I ask questions. We talk. You know, just yesterday I asked, so what new Capenna cards do you think are going to get played in high power? Um, and we talk all the time. One of the things that I would worry about by splitting off CDH is to effectively kill them. Like I think, I think it would it would ghettoize them and and really just choke off the the resources that they have for finding other players. I I don't want to do that. He's like I don't I don't want them to go away. You don't want to like be responsible for ruining friend groups. Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, this is really enlightening, knowing that uh, your position of leadership that you didn't even really ask for for the weight that it is now. You're handling it with empathy and removing yourself from the decision. Everything doesn't have to be what I like or enjoy. Yeah, I get that there are other people who like fun in a different, you know, like to have fun in different mm -hmm. ways. There are people who like music that doesn't resonate with me, or there are people who like television shows that you know I don't want to watch. I never want to try to yuck their yum, right? I want to, I want to keep them, like, like you said, with empathy, with, with consideration and empathy. I, I mean, I still have to tell them we're not shaping the format the way that you want it or think that it should be, right? We have a vision, we have an idea, like this is this is what we want, and this is how we're going to do it. You know, we've never been anything other than. We're gonna do this thing. Hope you come along, right? And if you don't want to, that's fine. Sure. You are not officially a wizard-sanctioned right. event, so you can't technically enforce it. Yeah, no. I mean, commander, commander only works if you believe. What a phrase! You you really have to believe in the sort of coherency of commander 
for it to, for it to actually work. Because if you examine it under a lens that it wasn't intended for, you're going to see that as a tournament format, it would have major structural cracks in it. Like multiplayer tournament, multiplayer tournaments by themselves, oh, yeah. format exclusive are difficult enough. You can't, well, you can't ignore the politics. You can't ignore the possibility of collusion. So that, I mean, that in and of itself is problematic. Ooh, that's also true. We don't, we don't want commander tournaments and we're not going to do anything to make commander tournaments better. We're not going to try to stop people from having them if they want to, right? Great, go, go for it. You know, if we're not also not going to, like you said, we don't have any enforcement arm. So if somebody wants to play Primeval Titan in their group, we're not going to Kool-Aid man into their kitchen. Oh yeah. And, and take their toys away. Like, do it. We, we intentionally built <laughs> this thing as flexible, as malleable. There, there is a structure and we think that structure works for the largest swath of people. But if you need to deviate from it, do so. Let people enjoy things, but we just don't think you'll enjoy this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that actually brings me to uh, the last two questions that I had. I've always had, personally, the belief when it comes to the spirit of EDH is like, your commander should matter. Like, you should care about your commander. It's why I've played Sequoia for 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and for me, it's a little odd when people are so quick to throw their commander by the wayside, like main deck. Yeah, I understand there are strict upgrades. I feel like the, the spirit is like, you should care about your commander. Now I know everybody has all these other decks now. I think the spirit is that you should care about what you care about. Yes, we want the commander to be relevant. Yeah. The reason the reason that it's always available to you is that we want it to be important. Yeah. I tinkered around with ideas back in the early days. I'm talking, mm -hmm. you know, 2004, 2005, 2006, of making the commander more relevant. Like, you couldn't win the game unless you had cast your commander once, or your commander had to be in play for you to be able to win the game. You know, like all these kind of crazy ideas. Quite honestly, again, when I, going back to what we talked about earlier, when I got the seed of this format, the commander was in the, the in the deck, was, was shuffled into the hundred. The first two things that I did were get the commander out of the deck so that you could always have it. They also had even basic lands were singleton. Oh, wow. And I'm like, this, this will never fly. It, again, in 2002, making a non-basic land mana base was really hard for especially for three colors yeah and you know the poor uh, the two poor decks that didn't have green in them crossing our fingers and finally ravnica comes out <laughs> yeah how would you describe the spirit of edh considering you are the, the one of the people responsible for it spreading as much as it is the spirit of the spirit of commander is a group of people enjoying themselves together it's it's four friends or four people who might be future friends getting together 
and having a good time and a you know and a game breaking out underneath the spirit of commander is that it's a social format first and a mechanical one second the the social part of it is really the important one. again going back to its roots of us blowing off steam backstage uh at at the pro tour mm -hmm. and we wanted to you know we we just spent 10 hours or 12 hours at the highest level of magic right yeah uh, you know guess the judge experience is different than the player experience but i mean it's, i mean if you have kibler and paolo looking at you and they're just like come on bud what do you what do you got right. It's, I mean, it's it's skilled labor though, yeah. right? Uh, so the the idea of, we just wanted to, I, I brought this, I brought this to the Pro Tour judges because I knew it was the sort of kind of thing that we needed for blowing off steam after an event. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the fact that we could sit at a table, have a drink, chum around with each other for, you know the, the chance that we didn't get to socialize during the day mm -hmm. because we were busy and always available to the players or if you're i mean head judging a pro tour means that you have to be paying attention to a lot of logistics i've been a to and, I, I can somewhat yeah. relate and you know, you're managing you're, at that point you're managing a team of people mm -hmm. uh, and managing a team of highly skilled people in fact which has its own challenges. So this was definitely a, it was intended to be the sort of beer and pretzels uh, format from the, from the get-go. I, I liked that. That was one of the things I saw the possibility of. And the, so the social, social, social is really the, 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 the spirit of the format. And what kind of game happens underneath is way less important. As long as everybody's on the same page, that, that's all that I would really care about. Interesting, considering I approached the question with an individualist mindset, and you came back with, well, it's the social part first. Right. And I think a lot of players actually might forget that it is the social part first. Other formats are not. Mm -hmm. Like, right. this is not the a format designed for spikes. This is the Johnny, Timmy, the Melvin, and the Volrats playground. Correct. This is the format where you can have your Doom deck or your your deck that only has cards that are in are start with letters of your initials. Ashling at 99 Mountains. <laughs> right. The idea is just alien. Really, the idea of Commander is alien to other formats, to all other magic formats. I was listening to um, Tannen and Ross's podcast before we got on, and Ross is He's just like, I literally don't understand Commander. I don't get it. <laughs> there are pro like, spiky players who do and spiky players who don't. You know, the, Sam Black, who is a yeah. great magic thinker, gets it. Doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily resonate with him, but he gets it. That's surprising like to me, he, considering how much of a Melvin Sam Black yeah, is. The way he, the way he talks about it, if you listen to, if you go read his tweets about Commander, he gets it. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, certainly recently, Brian Kibler has discovered Commander. 
you know, three months in, he is up to his elbows. And it's great to see because, again, he, he gets it. He doesn't, he doesn't want to win on turn two. Uh, he wants to do something savage at, you know, at a certain point. I saw that he was building a Rift the Awakener deck with only cards he played in Pro Tours. Yep. Perfect example. A perfect commander deck. So the last major question I had, and I think this is probably the most interesting and nuanced one, uh, is because it brings in your your moral perspective as the leader of the, uh, the rules committee. Now, I believe it was about two years ago that Wizards did the mass ban of all of the old cards. My co-host, Doc, a black dude, and I, I, when all of this happened, I showed him the card in both Prejudice. And he's mm -hmm. never played. And even he looked at it and he was like, wow, everything about this card is racist. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I looked at him and I'm like, you know what the worst part about it is? It's really powerful. Yeah. And uh, so all of those cards completely understandably needed to go. But when the Walking Dead Secret Lair came out, an entire issue in itself, I believe, I don't know if it still holds, but uh, Megan was banned as a commander, or I heard some discourse about that. No, none of the Walking Dead cards ever got banned. No, I heard a lot of discourse about Megan. Um, there, there certainly was, there was a lot of chatter about these cards. And about the about the the secret layer coming out, people didn't like the idea of mechanically unique cards crossing IPs that not everybody had access to. There were markets in the world that didn't didn't have access to them because of trade agreements, international commerce. I, you know, I, it's an area I don't really know anything about, but like in Brazil. It was. It just wasn't possible to get secret layers. Oh wow! So, and that's not a tiny market, right? That, there was a lot of discourse about those cards, uh, about Negan as a character, as a villain, uh, and the, you know some of the things that that he does on the show yeah. are are pretty reprehensible. When I was working there, I had seen the the cards mechanically. I didn't see the art but I saw what the cards did. I'm like, these cards are fine for Peter. They're good. Like Rick is pretty good, but as like for a human's tribal deck or something, but they, they didn't, the cards didn't set off any warning signs mechanically. And that's what we pay attention to. The depiction of Megan as a card uh, was going around somebody on Twitter uh, that I thought was really interesting, they were like, why can you represent Negan? Like, you can have a good villain that's like, does it like do all of these terrible things? And I'm like, well, for starters, what makes a villain? And Yawgmoth exists. <laughs> His whole drive is based around eugenics. And yeah. like, we're not going to say that we want to idolize villains, but we Correct. know what a good villain is yeah. and you can't have a good like story or even hero villain relationship if the villain isn't villainous i think you actually i think you can but but yes i get your point i i think it would be a a, a subtle and difficultly crafted story where the bad person wasn't really villainous uh, 
and, and, and certainly I like stories where where you're not sure who the villain actually is. Yeah. There's a great reading of Karate Kid where Daniel is actually the bad guy. And it's not Cobra Kai. Daniel is the aggressor in every situation. Uh, and uh, Johnny is just reacting to the, it's it's uh, like it's floating around. You could probably find it on YouTube mm-hmm. or something. But it's a it's an interesting reading. I think in some things you can have nuanced villains, but for broad appeal, mass culture things, the villain you know villainy has to be clear. Uh, they can also have good you know they can also have good attributes. Mm-hmm. You know there was a Bond villain. There was one of the Bond villains in the, the Kim Basinger film um, who. Sure, he was he was the Bond bad guy, but he also used his fortune to, you know, like fund orphanages and stuff. So Thanos, while his methods were completely wrong, he had not justifiable, but an understandable motive. Yeah. Well, if he could snap his fingers and eliminate half of everybody, he could snap his fingers and provide enough resources for everybody. That's also true. And I'm pretty sure it's he just didn't have that. He was like, wait, blind spot. But right. but like him solving the like him trying to solve the resource like scarcity. Right. Is an understandable goal, even if his methods were completely egregious. Correct. This is something that's interesting to me. With the Brothers War news set coming out, which I'm very excited for. I uh, actually just finished there's a uh, a great unofficial audiobook reading on Spotify. Uh, by Phil Dawson. He actually just got through Brothers War and Planeswalker. Mm-hmm. Pulls no punches when it comes to Yogg-Ball and Gix and Mishra. How do you think Wizards is going to handle these some wildly problematic cards and wildly problematic characters when they eventually bring them back? It's difficult for me to talk about since I've I, you know, I've seen the set. Mm-hmm. Well, I've seen this, I've seen the set as it was in design. So uh, it's it's kind of it's the kind of thing that I want to be very careful about commenting on uh, because I wouldn't want to um, unintentionally violate an NDA or or leak information. How about I phrase it? I think you can probably answer this better. Um, do the depictions of characteristics, not the cards themselves, of these characters feel genuine to their original intention? Yes. Like, we, we can we can have good and bad characters. Mm-hmm. Like, we, and not every, not every bad character has to be evil in the, in the sort of broadest sense, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, like you were just talking about, I, I don't think I would consider Thanos necessarily evil. I would consider Thanos misguided. Yeah, that's fair. Right, and that can that can certainly create conflict and make him the villain of the story of the story we're telling. Mm-hmm. Uh, the but I don't think that everybody who I don't think everybody who's necessarily evil has to have black in their casting class. Uh, the professor did a video on the biggest villains in magic and he put Urza as number one. Yeah. So I think that I think that the design folks at Wizards of the Coast and the marketing folks at Wizards of the Coast are sensitive to how characters might be depicted. Certainly now. 
Yes. I certainly understand Wizards. Is trepidation the right word when, when navigating all of this thing, considering mm-hmm. their problematic past? Sure. That's something I'm interested to see moving forward because these last five years have been a, a big change for Wizards. One of the ones that baffled me is there's been 116 secret layers since 2020. Really? 116. Wow. Yeah, you can't keep up. If you were, if you were a completionist collector, good luck. <laughs> you you got left behind. Toby actually, Toby was for a long time. I think he still has in his closet. He has a, a booster box of everything that doesn't include secret layers. You know, that, that's every. You know, that's every expansion set, every yeah. core set. Uh, that's not the secret layers. And he gave up. It's been five or six years. He's like, I can't do it anymore. Okay. So I guess the, the better way to, I guess, phrase and summarize that point is Wizards is a lot more conscious of their problematic history. Yes. You with the inside track, you like, you're saying they're handling it with care. I, yeah, I, well, they're, they're certainly handling it with a level of sensitivity that they had in the past. Uh, I, I'm not going to say that they're going to be perfect for everybody. Like sometimes when you do something right for one demographic, it's wrong for another one. So there, there are certainly situations where there's no win uh, or there's always some loss. So I, I think, I think their intentions are good and whether they can deliver the on the promise of that is remains to be seen right they're gonna they're gonna have to do it every time every set that comes out they're gonna have to demonstrate that kind of sensitivity all right so while we wrap up i just have a couple uh magic player curiosity questions sure everybody remembers their most stylish win in commander mine personally i played Mm -hmm. venser uh, Shaper Savant, Creatureless Voltron. And okay. somebody activated uh, Shaman of the Great Waves uh, to do the Biorhythm. Mm-hmm. Other opponent killed my Venser in response, tried to, and then killed the other person's board. I Riptide Laboratory, the Venser back to my hand, play the Venser, bounce that one guy's card, Psych Rift in response, Biorhythm resolves, I win because I only have Venser to play. Do you have one super stylish win that you remember? I do, in fact. It was at a Command Fest or an SCG Con uh, not that long ago, playing my Aminatu Demons deck. I have Liliana's contract in the deck, and I had exactly four demons, and one of them was Abyssal Persecutor. So my opponents were like, Good for you, right? So upkeep comes, Liliana's contract triggers. Uh, I respond by casting sudden spoiling on myself. That's so fantastic. I love that. I was gonna ask you if convince me Thassa's Oracle is okay, but you just said it's not a problem for 99% of the format. I just happen to be in that 1% apparently. Yeah, well, I mean, again, if it, if it starts matriculating down and, and and we see evidence of it in in those in our games you know in the the, the sort of tar- target demographic games like we did with Hallbreaker then sure 
but it's I think we're I think we're a long way for there from there and and the big end here is squad of experts on CDH that I talk to regularly believe that it's not it's not as much of a problem as most of their contemporaries believe it is I play Jun, so I lose to that card a lot. <laughs> I'm like, well, no endurance. I guess I lose. <laughs> we uh, just got to an hour, and I don't want to take up too much more, much more of your time because I know you are a very busy person. But thank you, Sheldon. Once again, this is Sheldon Mennery, one of the uh, gods of Commander. <laughs> thank you very much. This has been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It was, good to, it was a good chat. All right. Take care. Ciao. Look, it's a flood. It's a flood. It's flooding. Get away. Get away. Quick, we need to get to higher ground. Open the floodgates.